fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Good on FM Los 102.3 FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino is in the house. I'm in the house. Yeah. In the basement. In the basement. Practicing <laughs> judo. That's right. All sorts of stuff. What, what so what is that difference? when they people say judo and karate. Yeah. What's the difference? Well, the difference basically is, I mean, there are different styles of judo and karate, but with judo, it's more of a throwing art, whereas karate is more more punching and kicking. And that's just a very simple yeah. definition. Well, we, you're talking to me. We want it. <laughs> yeah, we got to keep it. We got to be it. really basic. That's right. It's Monday. It's got <laughs> to be basic, you know, stuff. So, yeah. So, now, do you, do you ever use any of that when you're out Christmas shopping? Yes. Yeah, Black Friday. You know. <laughs> <laughs> toss some people here and there, you know. You're really, you're that mean you're, guy that does that yeah. when 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 you're, there's <laughs> one item in a shelf and there's that lady going for it and you're going for it. And, and instead of you go for the package, you go for her and you throw her, kick her. That's right. Yeah. yeah and then jump and, you know. Flip around like three times and yeah, grab and it from the top shelf. So you must notice it when it's really fake on those on movies or TV. Well, you can tell that it's it's been um, you know it, it's totally uh, uh, choreographed. Yeah, I guess it, does that ruin it for you? Like when you watch Keanu Reeves and they're doing all that stuff and just that kind of go, oh, well, that's kind of too far. No, no, it's fun. It's fun. I mean, they have to do certain things. I mean, you know, they have to extend it. They they have to make things bigger so that you can see it on camera. They have to slow things down. Well, they have that blind karate guy. Do you think that's very realistic? <laughs> In the John Wick series? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's yes and no. I mean, that's that's been a, a, a staple of, like, Japanese cinema. But um, you can, you know, get, get, you know, increase your other senses. So, you know, of course it's like exaggerated in the movies, but there are, there are, tr there's training you can do so that, especially if you're connected to somebody and you can feel them, you can feel where they're going. Right. So you wouldn't necessarily need to be able to see them. Well, on that, they weren't very connected, but he could, he could out jump a bullet, you know, whenever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the John Wick world, that, that is absolutely possible. Yeah, totally possible, I guess. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, today we've got another great writer, and he's got a mystery series, the Dana Forsyth Mysteries. And uh, it looks like we're on book one of the series, and it's called The Sand Garden. So, Mr. Stan Jones, welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here, and I should note for the record that uh, I'm married to a superwoman who has a six-degree black belt in karate. So I'm a very respectful husband. Oh, I guess you'd have to be. Yes. <laughs> it's not like there's a whole lot of choice there, is it? <laughs> Absolutely not. Do you, do you find that you do when you, so when you write, 
and get into stories if you ever use sort of people fighting? Do you ever kind of take guidance from her? You know, that's a good question, and I have not because uh, mostly in my stories, I guess the fighting consists of people pointing guns at each other. So there's not much opportunity for uh, kicks and punches. Um, But it's something I should consider probably. Yeah, God, because you have – that's great to have that kind of – Have a source in the house. Yeah, in-house sourcing, right? And and um, God, or you could always just add like a super ninja to each story. <laughs> <laughs> Recurring character, maybe. Yeah, yeah. just to, to kind of name it after Dave, but then get your wife's kind of <laughs> info and then kind of have him jump into the scene for no reason at all. And, we know there is in the series... Uh, a recurring kind of mystery figure who's an outlaw biker named the Chaplain. Uh, there's no reason he couldn't uh, be, a, you know, whatever belt in karate. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll right. adapt him for the purpose. Yeah, because you just never know. You know, and that can be the action scene, right? Yeah. It yeah. has nothing to do with the story. Yeah. <laughs> Try to weave it in somehow. Yeah, just have him go into the store and he has to fight off a gangster or something. <laughs> I don't know. So the Sand Garden and this, this uh, Dana series, Dana Foresight, what is the premise behind this? Like you must have, um, whenever I see this, when it, when you're saying mysteries, obviously this Dana character is going to be several books. Right. So you kind of have something in mind for this character then, right? I do. And it kind of goes back to how I became interested in writing something like this. Um, I live in Alaska, which obviously is quite away from Palm Springs. But a few years ago, I started going down there from time to time to visit, visit a dear friend who would snowbird down there with his wife and they had a place and everything. And so they'd go down there in the winter and spring and I'd go visit. Um, and Palm Springs was about what you'd expect, you know, really nice and beautiful and pleasant. But I did some roaming around with my buddy and I discovered that down at the south end of the same valley, the Coachella Valley, things are really different. There's a huge dying lake down there called the Salton Sea. It's a giant squatter camp called uh, Slab City um, in a weird religious shrine in the desert called Salvation Mountain. And the contrast was just so striking. I said, there's got to be some stories here. Um, Plus, in some ways, the the desolateness of that desert and the conditions at the south end of the valley reminded me of rural Alaska, where I've written another series that's set called the Nathan Active series. So I said, hey, you've got to write a book about this. So I needed some excuse for somebody who would range around the whole length and breadth of that valley. And finally, I came up with Dana Forsyth, who is a cop's widow and an ex-cop herself who's turned to, to private investigation after quitting cop work. And when she was a cop, she actually worked down at the south end of the valley for the, the county sheriff's office down there. So that was that was kind of the setup. Somebody, a, a protagonist who would who would let the stories range around um, the Coachella Valley. And she's a, a midlife woman. Um, I had to, if I had to imagine this as a series. Um, it would be a Netflix series called Dana, and Dana would be played by Natasha Leone because Dana, you know, is kind of a, a little bit of a hard ass, and Natasha Leone just has that vibe. So it's, it's that kind of a story. And in the course of this first book, Dana discovers that her beloved uh, dead husband, late husband, actually had been cheated on her, cheating on her for years had sired um, twins with his mistress. And this story uh, starts when the mistress is murdered about eight months after Dana's husband's death. The mistress is murdered, and this chaplain character drops off the orphans 
um, on Dana's patio and says, I don't know what else to do with him, so you got to take care of him. And off we go. It's quite a story. So how, did you come up with that storyline first, or did you have kind of your main character all set up first? Well, I, I have a co-author on this book, and I should give full credit to her. Her name is Mary Washi, And we actually were starting something that has now kind of turned into the second book, just at the very beginning of it. And she said to me, you know, I had a dream about redheaded twins. And somehow that turned into this story. Now, in fact, these twins are one of each flavor. And I guess you can't have two redheaded twins unless they're identical. So only one of them is redheaded. But odd as it may seem, that, that one image of, of orphan twins dropped off on a patio is kind of, that's how this started. Mary Washi, now you, you've written other books with her and stuff. Um, I, I was beginning to think maybe she wasn't real. You just made her up. You were, you were thinking she was actually chat GPT, weren't you? Yeah, or either <laughs> she's just like some imaginary, or maybe that's your other name. Right? <laughs> that's my alter ego. <laughs> yeah, right, right. maybe that's, you know. Yeah. How, well, how do you get into a female character then? Are you relying on Mary more as your, as being Dana's voice, or could you do it? Well, that was kind of my reason for recruiting her. If I was going to tackle a female character, I kind of always wanted to because women have always been a fascinating study for me. The female psyche is so different from the male psyche that I just wanted to try it. And I, I thought if I had a woman aboard, more likely that I could pull off a successful female protagonist. And I do think it works pretty well. Mary made a, a really serious contribution to that, but it wasn't like she wrote the Dana internal interior monologue or anything it was kind of more suffused throughout the project right would you have to put yourself in a different frame of mind like how do you how do you get into the scene of writing from let's say dana's voice um is it just all research it's um a mixture of research a mixture uh, mixed with i should say kind of a long study of the obstacles that face women in navigating a male-dominated world, even still today, and uh, just thinking about, you know, well, what it would be, what would it be like to be in that situation and have that, and have that female background? Um, I also ran it by um, uh, family members and a few select readers, but both of my uh, adult kids now are writers of some flavor or other. So I got as much of a reality check on this from female readers as I could. Uh, my particular request of them was, all right, if you'd see a point where say where you say, no, a woman wouldn't do this, a woman wouldn't react that way, please let me know. Uh, there actually wasn't much of that, so I, I guess it just worked reasonably well all along. So you really actually dress up as Mary Walsh and pretend you're Dana. <laughs> right, well, <laughs> and hang out. That's and right. This is how you kind of, that's, right. that's how you figure it out. Yeah. yeah. I thought so. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. See, we're starting to find out the real story here. It's real. <laughs> real detail well it's it's interesting so now so you kind of had this this storyline and you've kind of got your character how do you get to the point of deciding what you want your character to go through throughout the story that's a that's a really excellent question and one way to write a story and it's, it's sort of my way is to have at least a general idea of where it's going but at the same time write scenes that get you as the author and your protagonist in some kind of trouble that you have to write your way out of in the next chapter. You, I, you know, always desirable to end a chapter with something that makes the reader say, 
oh my god what now right right so you kind of you're that mean guy that makes it so a, a reader can't just put the book down and go to bed ideally after this new one came out i got an email reader who said you know i hated to see it end i love i love the characters i love the dialogue and i love the setting <laughs> i didn't want it to end it's always good to hear that well, how do you keep track of, of the continuity within the story or even within the series, um, you know, especially with the series? Do you, have, um, do you have a series Bible? Do you have some sort of tools? Uh, how, how do you go about um, making sure that everything uh, uh, kind of adds up? Yeah, good question. I don't have a Bible per se, but I have a lot of notes on that sort of thing, all, all digital, uh, very little on paper these days in this modern age. And, of course, um, by the time I finish a book and – you know, it goes out for publication. I've probably only read it a hundred times or so. So, right. Um, and the th- interesting part is, if you if you reread um, uh, your writing, things will jump out at you. And some of them are just the t- usual. Well, I could have done that a little better. And others are say are, are like, no, you can't do that. You got to do something else here. Period. Um, I have I have read. I'm not sure. I believe it. I have read that when Hemingway would sit down to write. He would start by reading the entire book up to the point he had reached where he was ready to write some more, which could explain why his novels are so short, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that would be a lot of, yeah. that would be timed, you know, it would be a lot mm-hmm. of work. It but, would. You know, but everybody has their way, I guess, if maybe that's give him a chance to drink his bottle of whiskey <laughs> while he was reading. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Well, so do, do you have a point? In something like this, um, as in, is there a subtext? Is there a meaning? Is there something you want the reader to take away from the story? Story that's deeper than just the entertainment. Um, you know, clearly with a genre work like like a mystery, entertainment is is a, sort of the driving energy, if you will. Um, I guess the other thing I wanted to get at underneath it is um, what an amazingly diverse and complicated and contradictory place the Coachella Valley is with um, all of that wealth at the north end and, and all of that, for lack of a better word, dystopia at the other end. And so, of course, I made the two ends of the valley uh, interact in this story. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, uh, the diversity there. Yeah, you know, before I got into this, I had maybe driven through Palm Springs twice in my life, um, assumed it was kind of the balmy desert oasis we all think it is and palm springs itself is pretty much that but when i realized the setting it was in and and what the contradictions and contrasts were i said man my god what a what a rich field for mining well you know speaking of that you you mentioned uh the slab city yeah can you tell us a little bit about that what's it like and and did you visit that area to uh to to write the book i have visited the area uh, several times and spent um, a night or two. I actually found, believe it or not, an Airbnb in Slab City. Um, it was it was run by a guy who seemed to live in a tent. His name was Spider, and and the uh, and I stayed there with my co-writer Mary Washington. And we stayed in a little uh, camp trailer that had absolutely uh, no connections, and the only way to keep the door closed was with a bungee cord. Um, it did have a bathroom but the toilet just opened out onto the sand underneath. So it was okay for number one, but for number two, you had to go to an outhouse with a door that did not latch from the inside. And so if you just sat down on the stool, the door would swing open. As a consequence, whenever we needed to go to the restroom in a way that required sitting, 
both of us would have to go. So one could stand outside the uh, outhouse and hold the door closed. So uh-huh. that was our accommodations in Slab City. 40 bucks a night. Five star. Yeah, 40 bucks a night, <laughs> I think it was. So uh, here's what Slab City is like. Slab City in World War II was a Marine training base, and it covers one square mile exactly. And when the Marines left, they took out everything except the slabs that the buildings had stood on and the uh, water and fuel and, I assume, sewage tanks that had serviced the place. And so uh, the home, you know, squatters discovered this place and came in and started camping on the slabs. And uh, believe it or not, in the tanks. They actually live inside those tanks. And uh, it has a year-round population that is fairly low, 150 to 250 people, I think. Um, But in the winter, it has a bunch of snowbird RV campers that come in there and camp because it's free. And these are more or less normal people. Um, The core population, the the people who stay there year-round, and um, if you've been to Palm Springs, that area, you know that it's really tough to be there um, in the summer. And, of course, there's no air conditioning in Slab City. Um, But there are people who do it, stay there year-round. You know, uh, um, you know, God help them, but they're pretty dysfunctional. Uh, a lot of them are old. There's a lot of drug problems. There's mental illness. It's it's very dystopian. Um, and I think they have a fairly high death rate there. I'm not sure anybody tracks it seriously, but if you read the Slab City Facebook groups, and yes, they have a lot of those, um, you can read about um, all the deaths there. And um, I remember one post, where somebody said something along the lines of, you know, be careful of the effing desert, it'll kill you. So it's it's hard country down there, I'll tell you. I've, I've never seen anything quite like it. What's what's the, the lifestyle like then? What, what do people do down there? Nothing? They're just... Well, I think mostly nothing. They, um, uh, particularly in hot weather, they only come out at night. There are um, a few entertainment type, type things down there. There's actually uh, some kind of old uh, concrete, pond you know come to think of it it could have been a sewer sewage settling pond when it was a marine base that's been turned into a skate park and they have a a performance venue called the range and every night on friday every friday at night they have a a, you know a series of acts that come up and perform on the stage at the range Um, one of the more interesting things about the place is a camp called east jesus and it's an art camp and outside the living space in that camp, which is like a real house, or at least a building. Outside that living space, there's a big open-air art gallery with some truly bizarre sculptures. And the the people at East Jesus actually, as I understand it, bought the land that that camp is on, which provoked a lot of outrage among the true slabbers, of course, who don't pay for anything. Um, and, and And the East Jesus people have a sign on the door to the living part along the lines of don't come in here or we'll kill you and who knows if that's bluster or real but i have not gone in there oh you didn't perform there <laughs> no i did not <laughs> yeah yeah so uh slab city is just uh just uh endlessly fascinating if you're sort of a student of dystopia as i am wow that's crazy but isn't it the way and it's so close to palm springs wealth and you know, the flamboyant lifestyle. Glitter. And, yeah, I know. I know. And I, I think probably most of the snowbird people up in Palm Springs are just barely aware that anything like that exists so so nearby. I guess in a way it's like people that fly down to Mexico and 
live in a resort for sure. a while yeah. and go back home outside of that resort or that villa it's pretty rough too at times yeah yeah so i in kind of in in support of this conversation i you know showed the book to some other authors and said you know you want to give me a quote so i got a great one from a guy named rich japone who's a mystery writer too he has a book out called the hunger of prose but he read the sand garden and here's what he said and i loved i couldn't have said it better myself he said bikers tweakers abandoned orphans a murdered mistress the sand garden is dickens in the desert I really like the Dickens in the desert part of that. I never thought of it that way, but that is kind of what this is about in a way. Well, and I guess you must have stayed down a while or made quite a few trips because you also try to capture Palm Springs as well. And it's and it's a, a pretty big gay community, and it's pretty, again, like I said, flamboyant or very wild at times. It is, yeah. Um, so you, you must have spent a lot of time down there to try and absorb that to make Palm Springs be real you know yes absolutely in fact we're going back um after christmas for uh for a couple of weeks and um i have to admit um despite being uh you know a male of a certain age from a fairly right-wing state <laughs> i think palm springs is absolutely fabulous I, I love that diversity and you know at times weirdness and i don't maybe i guess everybody may have heard about the forever maryland statue but the place has a 26 foot statue of Marilyn Monroe with her skirt blowing up in that scene from, I think it was some like it hot. So it just, I don't just kind of sets the tone for what a uh, fun, merry place Palm Springs is. Yeah, it certainly can be. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> not for some of the people in my story, but it can be. Yeah. No, 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 I guess not. You know, do you, do you, are you conscious about how much violence you do put in a book like this? Um, I am. I, my, uh, Books, I think, are not terribly violent in comparison with some other work in the genre. Uh, and I will say they don't quite, I think, reach the level of thriller, where you think somebody's going to be killed uh, on every other page, and that often turns out to be true. Um, so the reason for limiting the violence, well, maybe in the case of Palm Springs, just because it doesn't fit with the vibe of the place at all, but um, I just don't want to write a story where the violence is the point. Violence is interesting to me, not when it's the norm, but when it's the exception. That's what makes stories interesting about, about unexpected, unusual things, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's got to be part of it, but you don't have to be a total murder show through the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ideally, you, you, want, you want your murders to happen not because it's somebody who likes killing people, because who, it's somebody who got into an extraordinary circumstance and behaved badly, but still you can understand how he or she got there. And that's kind of the important aspect of writing your your bad or evil character, right? The one that does something wrong or characters that do things wrong. You kind of got to get in their head so that people understand why they're doing it. Otherwise, it doesn't always work, right? Right. You don't want the killer to be a blank slate. They need to have some... Some vestige of soul and emotion and motive that could make some sense to a person who is absolutely not like that, not a killer, and never will be probably. That is the average reader. Yeah, because quite often I think what it is is that someone's in a place, they're in this this world, and for them they're doing the right thing. If not the right thing, 
the best thing they can come up with under the pressure of the moment. That's kind of the old, how far would you go to do this, to do exactly. that, to get this, exactly. you know, the idea, no war sort of. But, at the, you yeah. know, at, at the same time, I try not to give the impression that there is necessarily anything abnormal about murder. And I don't mean normal in the sense of desirable or, you know, uh, a goal to be wished for. It's just that there's so much violence in the human heart. You just have to regard it as actually part of the normal. That's how I do. Right. Yeah. No, I've, I've come to realize this working with Dave. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's the norm. Yeah, it is actually. That's right. It's the every day, every day. It's difficult for me to come to accept that. I'm kind of an idealist, and I said to finally realize, no, the human animal is not a noble, virtuous beast. He's good and evil and everything in between. He or she is good and evil and everything in between. Yeah, I agree, yeah. That's why you buy a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Buy a dog. They're better. or More dependable. Or if you, you know, if you don't want to get too vain or proud of yourself, feeling too fancy or good you can buy a cat and the cat will anchor you in your place oh that too (laughs) you know it's true it's all good animals are great yeah you know Um, one look from a cat and you know it's thinking you know i could kill you in your sleep right yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah you always have to be aware (laughs) one eye open yeah you know poor dave's wife they have a cat and dave what's she thinking She's better off with the cat. Yes, looking both ways. Yeah. Like, you know, holy cow. <laughs> well, so what's your process, you know, when you're writing these characters and you're doing that? Um, and before we get into it with what it's like working with another person, mm-hmm. like Mary, but what is it that you go through yourself? Or do you do you sort of see your character? Or do you hear them? Do you feel them? Like, kind of what's your relationship there? Well, I do see them. And what I actually do is once I have a, a word sketch of a character, I put that in the Google machine and search, and then I look at all the images. And when I see somebody that makes me say, yep, that's him or her, I actually download that and put it into the manuscript the first time that character appears. So if I, if I ever wonder, what, well, what does Dana look like now? Or what is this biker guy, the chaplain, what does he look like? I just go look at the picture. Um, and then... Where the voices come from for these different people, because they all do talk differently, I don't know. Maybe it's from looking at their pictures, but uh, somehow it comes into my head, well, here's how this person would talk. And in the, in the case of the protagonists, of course, this book is written in the first person. Um, a lot of the talk is actually interior monologue. And, you know, what, what's the protagonist thinking as this unfolds? But it has to be in the same voice as if you were conversing. What, what what's the advantage of writing first person for you? Do you think? Um, I have not done this before. I wanted to try it, and I thought that doing so would let both me and the reader become more intimate with the protagonist. And I think for me that actually worked. I do feel more intimate with the protagonist by writing in the first person. And so, is this the reason your wife has got? Uh... A black belt? Because you're hearing voices and you're talking to people and seeing faces and all that? Like, does she sort of have to, to watch out? You know? Well, um, I don't know. I, I do know that the reason that she got into it is she wanted to be able to defend herself if she were physically threatened. Um, and she did say at one point, including by me. So, yeah, that may have been part of it. <laughs> I, I will say, I'm, oh, you know, I'm not, yeah. I have never been that kind of a guy, but she said that. 
that's right. All the knives are hidden. Yeah, right, right. And she's going to practice on you, right? Uh, no, she doesn't. I uh, did. <laughs> I did. I did try it for a while, and soon realized it wasn't for me. So she's definitely the uh, <laughs> the karate master or mistress in the house. Well, with your characters, uh, do, do they ever surprise you while you're writing? Especially now that you're you know, you've, you've tried first person, do they surprise you and take the plot in in different places than you expected, or? They do. Have you found that you're more in control? They do, and they come up with interesting devices sometimes. And here's an example. So the story, in part, is about Dana dealing with the fact that her beloved husband, who was killed in the line of duty as a cop, um, betrayed her and had this secret mistress she knew nothing about and had two kids with this mistress. And Dana, unfortunately, could not give him any kids. Completely devastating to her. And to explain the ongoing dynamic of this plot, um, as a private investigator, she often works for an attorney, criminal defense attorney named Ike Stogel. Well, it turns out that Ike gets the job of defending the accused killer of Dana's husband's mistress. And Dana, very reluctantly, ends up working for the defense. So she's completely immersed in this thing of what happened to this mistress and what was going on with her and, and the dead husband. So the book goes on, um, and at some point, Dana said to me, Stan, we need another character. I want to have conversations with my dead husband, and I don't need him to be a ghost. He's just going to be an imaginary psychological device I use for my own comfort and healing. So we named him Imaginary Frank, and two or three times in this book and um, in every subsequent book, at least for a while, um, Imaginary Frank is going to show up and have a conversation with, um, with Dana. Now, Frank, um, in his life, was a huge fan of the Ford Crown Victoria, which um, back in the day, and still in some places, is the cop car. And he loved the Crown Vic, and he had one that he drove personally. So when he shows up to talk to Dana, he always arrives in his Crown Vic, and they have a talk. And then he drives away with a Partagas cigar, you know, clutched between the index and second fingers of his left hand, and he waves goodbye with it and drives out of her life for a while. How do you how do you incorporate that into a story? Like so, so when you're writing something like that, mm -hmm. how do you explain that? Well, it's made pretty clear the first time he shows up that she is not crazy. She does not think he's real or a ghost. He, she understands he's just a psychological or emotional device that her, her emotional torture and grief have come up with her, come up with as a way for her to, to process her grief and anger at this husband who betrayed her. Um, and that's, that's the extent to which it's explained. It's a, if you like, a psychological indulgence and she knows what it is. She's not, she's not nuts. She just invented this way of talking to her dead husband and, and he talks back to her. And from time to time, she will ask him a question about the case. And he will say, I don't know. I only know what you know, which is another reminder that he's just, uh, you know, a figment of her imagination, if you will. And anything they talk about, and whatever answers he gives, is because she knows the answers. And at some point, I think in the new story, she's going to ask him some question, and he's going to say, I only know what you know. And somehow that's going to ring enough of a bell that she's going to figure out the current thing that's puzzling her in the story. He's a sounding board in some ways, I guess, a sounding board. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a good, it's an interesting idea. I like it. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I introduced it um, late in the game when I was writing The Sand Garden. And I ran the idea by a couple of people, and they said, yeah, it sounds interesting. And then I tried it and ran it by them again, and they said, yeah, it, it works. Um, and uh, some of it actually arose from the fact that I said, there's a lot of interior monologue in this story as we watch Dana figure things out. Um, so what if, could we turn it, some of it, into dialogue? Dialogue's always better than interior monologue if you can pull it off. Um, so I thought about, well, should you have it with this lawyer guy she worked for? Should you have it with the chaplain? She has an assistant, maybe with the assistant. And somehow I said, oh, no, why doesn't she just have it with her dead husband? And that's where that's part of where imaginary Frank came from. You got a lot going on in your mind there. I know, I know. <laughs> well, one of the things I've learned as a writer is that I have bright idea syndrome. And that's when you wake up or go to sleep or you're eating uh, lunch and you have this bright idea and you are absolutely convinced it is brilliant. It'll turn the, the book into a masterpiece that will live forever. So I've also learned that when you have one of those, you should uh, let it cool off for a day or two and then think about it again. So I thought maybe uh, Imaginary Frank was one of those bright ideas that... Uh, deserved a speedy burial. But um, uh, I, I kept liking it and thinking that it would work. And in the end, it stayed in. And I still think that's working. And, and readers like it, too, I think. That's what I've heard. Are you writing for your readers then, too? I mean, of course you are in a sense. But when you, you've written before, so mm -hmm. when you write a book like this, and while you're doing the process, are you thinking about your readers and what they're thinking of, of the story or what they will think of what you're doing? Well, I am. I mean, and one particular thing you always think about is, will the reader get this? How much do you need to explain to make sure they understand it without insulting their intelligence by over-explaining it or boring them by over-explaining it? So that is always on my mind. And to some extent, um, there's always the question, well, who is um, the active, actual mystery reader likely to be? Um, in my experience, it's way more women than men. So I yeah. often think, even with my other books, the Nathan Active series, which has a male protagonist, um, I'm I'm always thinking, well, how would this land with a woman? Would this work with, with women? And that's, that's why even today, after all the books I've written, I still have a few women I ask to read my stuff to make sure I'm not going off the track in that regard. Right. That's going to be one of the hardest things, then, in writing uh, mystery fiction. What's that, trying to... Guess what? The, how the reader will react? Yeah, trying to gauge what will work and what won't, and also, like when you said, um, the reader's got to understand. So, like when you're doing something, like she's talking to her dead husband, mm -hmm. they've got to know what's going on. Sort of like you've got to explain it and not overdo it. But you know, that's going to be a really hard challenge, I would think. Well, you're right about that. It is, and it's. Um... And it's a critical challenge. You have to get something as weird as imaginary Frank Wright or it could just break the story, right? So um, one thing I <laughs> I really try to do is um, whenever I write something that's not an action scene, not a, just a clean-cut dialogue scene, I really try to think, all right, I've got 100 words here. Which ones can go? And if you really start looking at something and whacking at it, you're always shocked about how many of your words are not really needed. So boiling it down to its essence is a big part of dealing with exposition, background exposition and explanation and stuff. Right. I really get that when I'm editing radio shows. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, I, <laughs> no. I do the segments for the ads where you take a bit out of something that someone's saying 
some point, and a lot of times you have to make it, let's say, 20 seconds, so then you have to cut bits. But it's easy. I've learned to be able to cut words where people can still understand the point, but not they don't need all that filler. Yeah, yeah. But I have, um, I do have, you know, a couple of rules. Uh, one is no adverbs, and and the other one is as few adjectives as possible. For people that don't know what they are, <laughs> <laughs> an adverb is um, anything usually that ends in ly. And I'll give you an example of of an adverb that should absolutely die. If I were to write a Hallmark romance, and I found myself writing, he touched her cheek gently. I would shoot myself in the head. In the context of a love scene, saying that a touch was gentle, totally gratuitous. Must go. So, you know, from time to time, I just go through and search for the letter pair L-Y. And if it's in an ad- adverb, out it goes. That's why I never get any books published. <laughs> <laughs> and in a, in, in a more general sense, how much description to put in a book is a critical question for me, especially when I read them. I read a lot of books that have so much description in them, especially of mundane things like somebody, what somebody's wearing or what the weather is like, that it starts to drag and eventually I just abandon the book. Right now I'm reading a, a classic called Their, Their Eyes Were Watching God, um, which is set in a milieu and among a culture completely strange to me. And God bless the author. There's almost no description. It's almost all dialogue. And I really appreciate that. I, I think the point, I think for me too, I agree with that a lot. I think the um, description's got to be something that's important. You know what I mean? That's right. It's got to be something that's relevant. Exactly. It, ideally, every word of description is making a story point, not just telling the reader what a street in Palm Springs happens to look like on any given day. And that's what, you, and because you, I had imagine. Palm Springs and Slapsy, all this whole area that you're writing about, you've got to describe, you've got to have people understand it, but almost like a character, right? They've got to become a character in a sense. Oh, absolutely. Places. So the description's got to be very precise. Yes. All, place is always a character in a good story. That's what I think. So you can't get into the old, you know, the wind was blowing on a, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, in a place like Palm Springs, you need to describe enough to evoke it. So people sort of feel like, oh, yeah, I get what it's like there. But at the same time, avoid drowning people in that stuff. And also bearing in mind that most people probably have some image in their heads of Palm Springs, which is an argument for just enough description as opposed to a lot of description. I think at least Americans, you say Palm Springs, they think of sun and very nice architecture and beautiful streets and stuff, and, of course, palm trees. So, you know, you definitely don't want to overdo that in, in describing Palm Springs in a book. Right, yeah. And plus a lot of it's not important unless it's something that's, you know, describing a scene that happened or something and it was important or relevant. Then, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it kind of it can be overkill, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a word for writers, a somewhat derisive term for writers who do that too much, and that is, well, yeah, he's a painter. Painting is good with, with oil and uh, watercolor, not so good with words. And so it, I guess it, you capture the, the essence of Palm Spring, Springs by actually hanging out. So you were going to uh, all the bars and drinking with the boys and all that. Is that how you kind of? <laughs> well, I wish I had time for more of that, but, but I don't. <laughs> but what I do is I, I frequent a lot of Palm Springs Facebook groups. 
So it's, and the same for Slab City, actually. It's amazing what you can learn about a place from, from hanging out in those Facebook groups because the people that get on there are fairly unfiltered and they tend to talk about real stuff that's going on in their lives and, and um, what it's like. Um, so this, the Sand Garden um, does not have any major characters who are gay. And I sort of have this feeling at some point, if I'm going to write about that place, I should have a protagonist, a killer or a victim or something who's gay. But I, you know, I know so little about the culture and I have experienced so little of it. It's a, it would be a daunting challenge. I don't know what I do. I come to the point when I think it's time to try that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know that, I know that day in and day out, every subculture just lives its life, you know, and I understand that, but still, if you tackle a subject, a, a person from a, culture very different from your own it's a it's a challenge well that's a good place to start but but from living their lives yeah. and start there and picking up subtleties that again because you don't need to over describe anyway yeah you know? yeah well when in doubt don't do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, I think when i when i think i can do it without a doubt i'll either do it or say no you're nuts don't even try this yeah yeah <laughs> story of my life yeah you know? well listen so now um where do people find you? Obviously, you're on Facebook. You do all the social media, TikTok and all that, and you do a website. Um, what's, what's the place? Well, I, I do have a website, and it's pretty simple. It's sjbooks.com. And on Facebook, I'm Stan Jones and Stan Jones's Books. And there are separate web pages for this series, the Dana Forsyth series and the Nathan Active series. Um, and I am on social media a lot, Instagram, uh, threads and the possibly uh, doomed Twitter slash X, but I guess I'll be on it as long as it's still around, Uh, just tiptoeing into TikTok because it's basically a video platform. And um, it's hard to come up with, hard for me to think of what I could come up with that would really work, seem at home and in its uh, natural element as a video. But I am working on that. And uh, just as an anecdote, I... (laughs) There's this um, very strange influencer on on uh, <clears throat> Instagram named uh, Eva Tichnell, and she has this thing she does where she will say a few words and then deliver the tagline that's becoming increasingly famous, nothing like it. And Eva appears to be um, a young youngish Southern woman with a with a big Southern accent, um, and and she has a pretty big following on on Instagram. Well, it turns out that if you uh, pay Eva not too much money, she will actually make a very short video, you know, maybe holding up one of my books and saying the sand garden, nothing like it. And so I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get her to produce a little, these little mini blippy ads for, for the sand garden in my other books and start sprinkling those around social media just for the fun of it. But the point being here that they would work on TikTok, I think. Yeah, well, you just you don't know until you try. Absolutely, yeah. you can't win if you don't bet, as they say in Las Vegas. Yeah, well, that's true, you know, <laughs> and that's certainly how it is. So, and so, uh, you're going to be working on the next book now, or do you flip to something else and then come back to this? Like, what's your what's your plan? I'm well into the next book, um, about twenty thousand words, I would say, which is you know one third of a book plus or minus. Um, and the um, the working title is "Dying Well is the Best Revenge." And briefly, it's this. Uh, a young trophy wife comes into Dana's office and hires her 
to find her boyfriend, the boyfriend with whom she has been cheating on her rich old husband. And so Dana uh, and, the, and the boyfriend has, has broken up with the trophy wife because he wanted her to leave the husband and be with him. And she wouldn't do it. She wants the money. So he breaks up with her, takes off, kind of leaves no trace. And so she suffers a broken heart and realizes he was really her best chance at self-realization and emotional honesty and all that stuff. So she hires Dana to find him so that she can go and try to reconcile with him. So in relatively short order, Dana does find him and um, spots him working in a, uh, in a gas station down on the, on the shores of the Salton Sea down in dystopia country. And so Dana gives the uh, trophy wife the address of this place, and, um, and the trophy wife sets off to, uh, to, to find her guy. And by the time that day is over, the rich old husband is dead, the boyfriend is dead, and the trophy wife is accused of both murders. Oh, there you go. So talk about putting everybody into positions that I'm still not quite sure how to get them out of. This is a classic example. Well, you could always just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. It's probably going to be all downhill from, from, from that point anyway. Yeah. You know, you know, then she wakes up and it was all a dream. Yeah. Yeah. Title, titles are always a fun part of the process and trying to, trying to figure out what to call a book. But for a long time, the name of the Sand Garden, or what became the Sand Garden, was Slab City. And I still think that could be one of the all-time great book titles. But in the end, I just thought there's not quite enough Slab City in this book to justify that title. So we came up with the Sand Garden, which is, you know, kind of a metaphor for a place where bodies may be planted after they're killed. I think I think Dave has one of those, don't you? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> well, it's been interesting. It's always good talking to you, Stan. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, Likewise here. And, of course, the book, yeah. The Sand Garden. That's right. Dana Forsyth Mysteries. Right. So available every, everywhere, of course, Amazon and all the other places that people buy books. Fantastic. We'll have all that up on the website right. as well as yours. And we appreciate you being here. Hey, I appreciate it, too. It was wonderful talking with you. Thanks, Dan. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This is here production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.